0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring Indian psychology. My guest is Professor Kiran Kumar Salagame, who is retired from the psychology department at the University of Mysore in India, where he served as the chair of the psychology department. He is also currently vice president of the International Transpersonal Association, and he is the author of the Psychology of Meditation, a Contextual Approach. Welcome, Kieran. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you. Indian psychology uh, really represents the integration of Western psychology, empirical psychology, with the ancient, mystical, transcendental traditions of Indian culture.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's that is what I and many of my colleagues in the field have been doing that Mm -hmm. Uh, As per my research uh, as I have come across Swami Vivekananda came to United States and attended the parliament of religions in Chicago, right? Subsequently, he gave lectures in uh, many of the states within the United States of America and in a few of his lectures in California in 1900, he explicitly uses the term Indian psychology and distinguishes it from Western psychology and uh, has uh, identified certain characteristics, primarily, you know, the spiritual possibility Of uh, human nature, uh, the idea of soul, the law of karma and rebirth as quintessential characteristics of Indian psychology. So and then uh, he speaks of Patanjali as the world's first psychologist uh, because he codified the, the Yoga Sutra as a practical manual and he also speaks about Certain ideas from Vedanta and other traditions, as part of Indian psychology.
0: I know that Swami Vivekananda and William James, the founder of American psychology, became friends, and I think Vivekananda uh, may have inspired some of James' own work. For example, in the varieties of religious experience, he James does, uh, you know, mention
1: about. Uh, Vivekananda and his interaction with him and all that in very of religious experience. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so there there's a sense in which Indian psychology and Western psychology Intersected at the very beginning.
1: Oh uh, yeah of the previous century mm-hmm. of the 20th century.
0: Yeah. Yeah, But subsequently, I know American psychology turned away from the thinking of William James, became very behaviorist, and I think that also had an influence on psychology in India.
1: Yeah, uh, it was almost uh, in the beginning of the 20th century itself, the Western psychology was introduced in the Indian universities. Uh, The first uh, course on uh, modern psychology was introduced in Calcutta University uh, in 1908 and later on in 1916 an independent department of psychology was established in Calcutta University itself. And later in 1924 we had the first chair of psychology in the University of Mysore. Modern psychology was established and developed in India And efforts to develop what we call Indian psychology also parallelly started then itself, back in 1900. In 1914, a Buddhist scholar, Mrs. Rice Davids, she wrote uh, and published the book Buddhist Psychology in 1914. And uh, Sri Aurobindo wrote something on education where he mentioned about Indian psychology and the nature of mind and its classification from the Indian point of view. Then, of course, Jadunath Sinha, a philosophy professor who also had some interest in psychology, he was the first person to publish books on Indian psychology with three volumes, which has become some kind of a classic which collects all the ideas in the Indian traditions, you know, Vedic, Jaina, and Buddhism, and brings together.
0: You have these these efforts, but I I gather the dominant uh, stream of psychology in India was really Western behaviorism in, in those years,
1: uh, along with, of course, uh, psychoanalysis, because. Uh, Uh, There was a psychiatrist uh, who also was head of the department in Calcutta University, Girindri Shekhar Bose. He was a psychoanalyst himself and uh, he founded the Psychoanalytic Society in India. So even the influence of psychoanalysis was also there. And uh, of course uh, other streams of psychology, you know, animal behavior studies.
0: But was there a sense that the uh, type of psychology Vivekananda was describing, which made reference to the the great religious classics, uh, was regarded uh, in the universities as maybe a throwback to superstitious thinking or something along those lines?
1: Yes, it was. It was thought because you see, psychology subject was introduced as part of philosophy departments. Later on an independent department of psychology was carved out of philosophy department. Mm -hmm. So none of the persons who occupied the chairs uh, and led the department uh, wanted to go back to something which was considered already as superstitious, regressive, or philosophical, or religious. Mm. So they wanted, and most of them were trained either in Canada or in United States or in England, some in Germany. So they had strong influences of the modern psychologists in the empirical tradition. So they wanted to take that forward. They didn't want to go back. Mm. Uh, Yeah, that's the main
0: point. Mm -hmm. Now, I know in your own work, uh, we've discussed in earlier interviews, the concept of Turiya, or transcendence, uh, is really very, very strong in ancient uh, Indian literature, and you've endeavored to integrate that as, as basically the centerpiece of Indian psychology
1: it so happened that i was doing my doctoral research on altered states of consciousness four decades ago uh, then uh, i was working uh, with meditators uh, people from different uh, spectrum you know they may be representing uh, ramakrishna mission or theosophical society or vivekananda kendra Uh, Brahma Kumaris and uh, so some independent uh, Mm sādhakas, spiritual seekers following Vedanta tradition. Mm -hmm. So during the data collection one of my uh, participants in the research who answered my questions he brought up a fundamental issue regarding how Western psychology defines altered states of consciousness. He asked me a question. Why do you define altered states of consciousness with reference to waking state? As a psychologist student, I said that's how it is defined by uh, already pioneers who are doing research in the field. Then he pointed out to me fr- from the Indian Upanishadic point of view, Waking state of consciousness is also an altered state of consciousness. That was some kind of a critical incident in my life, which actually, you know, turned me towards the Indian thought. Mm -hmm. For a moment, when he made that observation, I was stunned because the edifice on which waking modern psychology has developed, has built, seemed to be on the shifting sand. So, I asked him, okay, what is the reference state in the Upanishad, which treats even a waking state, an altered state? Then he mentioned Turiya. Mm. Turiya in Sanskrit means fourth. So, waking is called Jagrat, then dream is Swapna, and deep sleep is Sushupti. So, these have one, two, three states of consciousness which modern psychology is familiar with and they have a name see jagrat sopna and Sushupti. whereas the four turia means only fourth it is only a name it has no it it has only a number yeah. no name and uh, Then he elaborated on the concept and he said it's a transcendental state beyond all the three states. You know, Turiya is the foundation, a ground awareness on which the waking dream and deep sleep states unfold themselves. And they keep periodically going round and round in human life. So, though I was a modern psychology student and I was doing my research, uh, from unaltered states of consciousness from the Western perspective, when uh, one of my research participants uh, pointed out that fundamental difference, then uh, there was no turning back for me. I, I recognized the crucial distinction and understood that here is a wealth of information about further human possibilities. You know, you can speak of human potentiality. Uh, Or if I have to borrow Maslow's term, that's the farther reaches of human nature, you see. So modern psychology limited itself to certain aspects of human nature. But Indian tradition has already gone exploring farther reaches of human nature well beyond the imagination of contemporary science. Mm -hmm. So when I recognize that, I said, okay, there must be something we. I should take a serious look at it and see how I can bring it. It is not to supplant Western psychology.
0: It is to integrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my approach. And if I understand correctly, it would be your sense that because Indian psychology incorporates this notion of transcendence, which is really only barely touched upon in Western psychology. Indian psychology uh, is better equipped to understand Western psychology than the reverse. Exactly. You have said it right. Uh, I know you mentioned Abraham Maslow, who I regard as, as a great inspiration to me as an undergraduate and one of the founders of the field of transpersonal psychology. But today, transpersonal psychology, I regard it as a very important discipline, but it's not even recognized by the American Psychological Association as an independent branch of psychology. Uh, you're the Vice President of the International Transpersonal Association, it seems probably to you, uh, transpersonal psychology and Indian psychology are almost synonymous.
1: Yeah, almost synonymous. Uh, it is not the same because as I see that still the Western transpersonal psychologists have their strong moorings in the they are rooted in empirical methodology. Mm -hmm. They are still trying to operate within the broad framework. Though, of course, uh, there have been attempts uh, to bring in the notion of radical empiricism Mm -hmm. of William James into that. Uh, There has been a lot of uh, good thinking going on. Research methodologies are being developed to examine the transpersonal phenomena. But uh, uh, but still uh, when you look into the indian literature of the possibilities yeah. of the transcendental possibilities i say you know the, the gap is too vast too wide because the, the what we have uh, seen or what i have personally read in the biography of ancient saints and modern mystics and sages what all human possibilities are there which is of a transcendental nature, I don't think uh, transpersonal psychologists have been uh, concerned so much about that. So there is a whole lot of gap in that.
0: The ancient rishis uh, of India were exploring these things with enormous sophistication and and detail thousands of years ago.
1: Yeah, not only thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. If you read the biography Uh, First person accounts of many people who met uh, great sages, you know, how they came to them, what happened to them, what extraordinary experiences they had and all that. When you look into that, I don't think uh, modern transpersonal psychologists are still... willing to accept those
0: possibilities. You mean such as Aurobindo's, Uh, yoga diaries?
1: Not only yoga diaries of Aurobindo. Uh, Yeah, he has written a lot of, uh, you know, experiences. Uh, I think uh, uh, they are still uh, slowly entering uh, the territory of the transcendence. Mm -hmm. It is just crossing the uh, boundary. Uh, from the empiricism towards the transcendence. So just entering it, but there's a whole lot of terrain which can be explored. Uh, What requires is first uh, people have to become aware that all these are possibilities which have been already, do- you know, in one way or other uh, documented.
0: I know that in the uh, early days of Western psychology, um, in the late 19th century, uh, for example, Wilhelm Wundt, in Germany, who set up, I think, the first psychology laboratory worked with a technique called introspection. Yes, Had his patients, uh, not his patients, his research subjects, report their inner experiences, and that technique was dropped. Um, After a few decades, uh, Western psychologists determined it wasn't very fruitful. I'm under the impression, though, that in India, the technique of introspection was used extensively in ancient times uh, with a level of detail and discipline that the uh, Western psychologists could barely imagine.
1: Yes, it has been done. See, when you speak of introspection, what was the criticism about Wundt's method was the observer and the observed or at this same level. You know, one portion of the mind is carved out as observer and that carved out portion is observing the other part. So, therefore, that was not acceptable. But if you take the Indian rishis, the observer was not a part of the waking consciousness observed. It was not within that waking state. It had transcended, you know, we have the word sakshi, witness, okay, or we have the word in the Yoga Sutra, drashtu, the one who sees, okay, one who perceives. So, who is the perceiver, who is the seer? That seer is not part of the waking state awareness, it is not the little identity which is looking at it, it is a transcendental awareness. So, with that awareness you can still be empirical uh, in the sense that you are observing. What are you observing? You are observing the whole uh, functioning of the mind. And uh, what is the purpose of Yoga Sutra? The second and the third verse of Yoga Sutra makes it very clear. What is what is the second verse? It says, what is yoga? Yoga chitta vritti nirodaha. That means stopping all the modifications of the mind. If you are able to modif- stop all the modifications of the mind, what will happen? Tata drashtu swaroope avastanam. Then, The seer will be in his own nature when all the modifications are stopped. Okay, once again the mental activity happens, what happens to the seer? The seer will take the form of the mental activity itself. So that you cannot differentiate between the mental activity and the seer. But how do you recognize there is a seer and the mental activity are different? For that, you have to do all the exercise of the Yoga Sutra. First to become aware of the difference and then to make that, to cultivate, to get frequently into that differentiation and to get established in that state so that everything is uh, empirical to you so the word empiricism here takes a different meaning not the modern scientific sense
0: of the term i am not using in that sense so i'm under the impression that the way you're using the term empirical now is very similar maybe identical to the, what william james had in mind when he talked about radical, radical empiricism. empiricism
1: exactly he said Uh, Empiricism is to bring all experiences into the ken of observation. That's radical empiricism and uh, who is the observer? It is not the sensory process which is the observer, it is the consciousness which is taking part in the sensory observation process that becomes the observer and looks at the mental activity. In a
0: sense, we're talking about pure consciousness without an object. Exactly. Which, as far as I can tell, was almost an alien concept to most of Western psychologists. Exactly, exactly. That's
1: true, that's true. That is where the difference is. So, that is where, you see, I have written the paper, probably you read, Psychology of Yoga and Yoga Psychology. Mm Uh, You know, most of the current uh, discussion and research on yoga is uh, from the Western perspective. But yoga psychology has altogether a different understanding of how the mind functions, what are the levels of the mind and uh, what are the difficulties involved, what are the different types of mental functions. There's a whole lot of uh, psychology in the yoga system which has not been completely explored by researchers.
0: Well, yeah. as a parapsychologist, I'm particularly fascinated by the extensive description of the cities exactly. in, in the Yoga exactly. Sutras. There is a whole chapter on that called Vibhutipada,
1: yeah, which tells you when you master certain yamas and niyamas, what type of siddhis uh, will start manifesting. You know, when a person has mastered ahimsa, how all the wild animals also can be around the sage, the yogi who has mastered ahimsa, for example. Uh, So, uh, all that description is there. But the question of explaining it, the mechanism. uh, When do you actually mastered it? How will you know? It is only by a kind of inference you can perhaps say. Or there may be some other master who can tell you. So it's like that. So that, that is what I
0: mean. They have just entered. There's a whole terrain to explore. One of the other unique and I think vital features of Indian psychology, which is only just beginning to come into Western awareness, is the notion of reincarnation. Yes. How for example somebody can be born a great prodigy or genius
1: yes uh how do you account for it can we can we account for it biologically can we say it's a genetic determinism certain uh, uh, certain gene got activated there were some uh, dominant or submissive genes and that i don't know it's very difficult to say because uh, the whole question of whether biology can explain it or reincarnation can explain it. So, this is a big controversial issue that exists today. Even Ian Stevenson's research, uh, you were mentioning that uh, there are people who agree with him and there are people who disagree with him. Yes, even but
0: amongst uh, parapsychologists. Yeah,
1: but uh, the, the, one of the things that I think of uh, which questions the biological explanation is, can, can uh, a child prodigy, for example, uh, or a two-year-old prodigy, uh, can recognize certain symphonies, certain harmonics. Uh, it can name uh, which particular melody it is from the Carnatic classical music. Uh, it can give the name of that or, and identify all that. Is it possible that even that is encoded in some uh, genetic structure? Can, can, or, or is there, unless there is a past experience of that, can it get encoded? Uh, is it a new manifestation? Uh, how, how, do, how do you account for it? So, but when you take the Indian notion of there is soul, soul continuous, with life after life, it carries all the essence of the experiences of one life onto the other. Then it becomes much more easier mm-hmm. to explain a child's prodigy or the, some person's ability or whatever it is. You see, mm-hmm. so therefore, you know, there's a lot more Uh, needs to be done before uh, the the issue can be settled.
0: Till then we have to keep open. You can tell me if I'm wrong. I think pretty much all over the Indian subcontinent, people accept reincarnation as a natural fact.
1: Yes, yes. That has been there because from hundreds of years, uh, thousands of years, this has been there. Okay? Even uh, even buddha for example when he was born i was reading about his life story some sage sitting somewhere in far off place in a cave he knew that he is going to be born and he came all the way and told buddha's parents that either this man will become a, a you know an emperor or he will become a monk so uh, that is why Buddha's father didn't allow him uh, for so many years to see the negatives of life, so called. He couldn't bring the palace. palace yes. You <laughs> see, but what happened? Uh, you know, one, just one day he went out and there he go. He yeah. is, he went away. So now, you, if you take successively uh, the generations of yogis, rishis, munis, How many of them have experienced it? Okay. I'm just giving a very crude analogy. You see, in the 400 years in the United States, if so much innovations, so many things could happen in 400 years, imagine the time scale of the Indian civilization and why it is not possible that So many yogis were there, they experimented on themselves and they developed this knowledge. They transmitted it and uh, so naturally it became part of everybody's life and uh, uh, what is wrong with it? Why it should be thrown away or rejected as uh, superstition?
0: I, I don't understand. I, I am assuming that, um, like myself, you would regard these ancient yogis and rishis as early psychologists. Definitely. And yet, I know in in your writing, at the same time, you, you've suggested that there's sort of a lack of psychological, specific psychological literature in ancient India, that uh, many issues that are addressed in Western psychology were completely ignored.
1: If I can tell you, mm-hmm. the, whatever we are today calling psychology, Indian psychology, it may be related to cognition, affect, or will, or uh, any social behavior or anything, They were discussed at different contexts. See for example, if you take all the spiritual aspects and uh, related to mind and all, they were discussed in uh, philosophical systems. If you take the how do you experience emotions etc. They were discussed in aesthetics, for example, in dramaturgy. We have a concept called rasa. Rasa is not just emotion, it is a finer sentiment you know, from which different emotions can come. So we had a finer understanding of the human emotion, okay. That was discussed in the context of dance, drama and aesthetics. Then something on sexuality was discussed by, uh, you know, Vatsayana who wrote the Kama Sutra. Mm -hmm. And something about uh, nature of mind and all was discussed in the context of uh, Vedanta or Sankhya and that metaphysical
0: it. We we even discussed in a previous interview in the Bhagavad Gita.
1: In the Bhagavad Gita it was discussed. So now, so therefore, the way we are speaking of psychology, giving a framework, did not exist. Mm. As a subject to be studied in a institution of higher learning. But... We had a lot of psychologizing, as one of our psychologists has written. Mm -hmm. So therefore, now what is happening is, some of us who feel this is all valid and valuable, we are trying to collect this information, put them together with a nomenclature Indian psychology, only to highlight that this is indigenous and we have all this. It doesn't mean it is only for Indians or it is it is uh, reflecting only the Indian mind. Uh, it is for the whole of humanity. Mm-hmm.
0: You also point out I think uh, that to some extent, the spiritual traditions that wrote about psychology occasionally also sort of warned not to get distracted by it because it could be seeing a focus on all of the uh, movements of the mind might be a distraction from the quest for transcendence.
1: Yes, exactly. The quest for transcendence basically means going beyond the mind and its operations To understand a higher state of awareness, which in the modern sense, we call pure consciousness. Now, to understand that pure consciousness, you cannot have the mental activities always operating. If you want to experience some quietness, you have to shut off the noise temporarily at least. So, mind has the value of noise, or it's an, it is of a nuisance value for people who want to realize Atman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, if somebody wants to occupy oneself with the noise value, you will not get to know what is the real Atman. So therefore, even however attractive the uh, mental function, Siddhis or whatever, The yogi, the rishis said, don't get bogged down by that. Because it is another trap. See, whether you go and enjoy a Harry Potter's movie or you enjoy Siddhis, as far as a rishi who is concerned with Atman, both are of the same order. For them, it's both of the mind only. Mm -hmm. And both needs to be shut off, you know. So, so therefore, uh, that is the warning they gave. That's all it is about,
0: yeah. I think probably some of the most significant contributions of Indian psychology have to do with the nature of the self. Exactly.
1: Nature of the self becomes the predominant thinking in the Indian tradition. Realizing your real self or identity, should be the goal of your life. That is how you know we have the concept of uh, Purushartha. Purushartha means values of life. So our tradition identifies four major values of life. They are called Dharma, Artha, Kama and Moksha. Dharma means right living. Right living at the social level, in relation to ecology and the nature. It is not just the social conduct alone. Then, Artha is all about wealth and money, possessions, etc. Kama is fulfilling your desires. It may be biological need, it may be, you know, psychological need or social need, That's or it's Kama. Karma, Not Karma. No, no, Kama. Kama.
0: As uh, in Kama Sutra.
1: Yeah, in Kama Sutra, you will find more emphasis on the sexuality part. But when you speak of karma as a value, it means desire, human desire as a whole. It is not just the sexual one. So then you have another value of life called moksha. That is liberation. Liberation from the cycle of birth and death. Now I think uh, no other... uh, tradition speaks so much or keeps liberating oneself from the cycle of death and birth as the highest ideal for human existence. I was talking about this uh, somebody pointed out in the Jewish tradition there is something about it. So I'm not aware of that Uh, but probably this is the one tradition which gives the highest value of getting yourself liberated from the cycle of birth and death and in that matter whether it's Vedic, Jaina or Buddhist they agree. That's a fundamental common denominator but how you approach that they may differ but the goal is the same. Okay, so therefore when you look into these four aspects, what is moksha, how is it defined? It is defined as knowing your ultimate identity. You know, there was a psychologist, social psychologist, Adam Curl, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, C-U-R-L-E. He has written a small book called Mystics and Militants, Awareness, Identity and Social Action. Uh, I don't know whether you have come across. It's a wonderful book. Everybody should read it. Uh, he speaks of two types of human identity. Belonging identity and awareness identity. He says belonging identity is developed around what belongs to you and what to what you belong. Awareness identity can be at two levels. At the psychological level, which psychotherapists and psychologists, we enhance the awareness. And there is a supraliminal awareness which is spiritual. He says the mystic is trying to reach that awareness level of identity. Whereas the militants are the people who are struggling with the belonging and the psychological awareness. Uh, And uh, the concept of awareness identity clearly puts across the Indian notion of self-realization. So all the so-called self-realized beings are people who were established in awareness identity of a spiritual nature.
0: Mm-hmm. You you raise an interesting question in one of your writings when you talk about the, the quest for union with God and which which you ask the question, well, what is this God and and who is going to be unified with him?
1: <laughs> yes. You see, that question is asked also uh, in the tradition Mm -hmm. and you can also ask that question when we say God, which God you are unifying with. Again, it is a question of mental construction because I want to give you two uh, Sanskrit, uh, our traditional sayings, uh, which has some bearing on this particular point, which is very important. In the Rig Veda there is a, a whole set of hymns called Nasadiya Sukta. It is called Nasadiya Sukta. So in which the Rishi is asking certain questions about the creation of this universe. So he is wondering whether this universe was created Did the universe exist before him or did not exist? What it means to be not existing and what it means to be existing? How this came into, you know, developed into all these things? So he muses and says, even gods may not have an answer for this. Yes. That is called, uh, you know, creation
0: hymn. It's a beautiful hymn. I studied it as an undergraduate. It's very profound. It very has profound. Moved me uh, ever so, since I first learned of it.
1: Yeah. So you see that that creation hymn. It shows that our rishis were not blindly believing in a god or anything. They they were not thinking in terms of creationism at all. Yeah. They were saying even gods might not have an answer for that. They might not know about it. When we speak of God, we have no specific idea, and ultimately these are some higher kind of. Uh, Uh, existence, manifestation, or a higher order of awareness.
0: Well, a Western psychologist would say this whole conversation is not psychology at all. You're getting into theology and you're suggesting, no, there's a psychological point to be made here, that there is a, a, a level of awareness completely beyond ego. Yes, yes. Well i think it might have something to do with the quest for self knowledge exactly uh, people
1: from all over the world flock into uh, you know ashrams and monasteries of our indian spiritual savants you know i frequently go to ramana maharshi ashram and stay for 3 4 days mm-hmm.
0: And as I recall, Ramana Maharshi uh, is known for uh, an exercise where he has people ask, Who am I? Yes, that was
1: his strong point. And uh, his basic idea was to, you know, uh, try to disturb a little uh, and put you into the path of inquiry. Uh, Because... um, When I was young, when I was initially introduced to him, I was wondering why Ramana Maharshi always gets into that point and says, uh, who are you, find out first. If somebody says, I want to serve the society, that's okay, society will be there, but find out who wants to serve the society. So this is how he would put it. So as I matured, as I read, It made sense to me because his own realization happened in an instant with an awareness of self. And within that moment, he had completely achieved that state of realization. Later on, he did not need any practice or anything. So, in other words, he was already there. So, he is looking at the whole of reality and everything From that, you know, vista point, you know, you use the word vista point here. I have been going around California, (laughs) seeing many vista points. So he he had a different vista point from other ordinary beings. He was there to transform people.
0: That's why he asked, find out who you are. And and I'm under the impression that when one asks the question, you, you get to one image, and another image, and another image, and you keep realizing, no, not this, not this, not this, until you finally arrive at the very ground of being.
1: Yes, that's true. And that process of not this, not this, not this, eliminating, that is what is called sadhana, a spiritual path or spiritual effort. It is not Something you want to accumulate and increase your identifications, which is what is called ahankara. Uh, we have done some research on that concept in my department, and uh, we, with one of my students, I came up uh, with the idea of examining this concept. Uh, if you permit me, I'll go into yes. some details yes, okay. of it. Uh, You see that uh, Wilbur, Engler and Brown have written a book on uh, consciousness from contemporary transformation of consciousness uh, where they have discussed uh, uh, many research uh, done by uh, Brown and others on meditation uh, on yoga and other things. So from a psychoanalytic perspective doing meditation and the idea of transcendence means to lose your ego that means to become mad you know from a strict yes. psychoanalytic perspective mm-hmm.
0: yeah. weak ego different. means that you're susceptible to yeah. uh, the irrational impulses of the unconscious le- leads to madness yes yeah. ego yeah. strength is considered more valuable more valuable so
1: Uh, But you look into Indian literature, nowhere it is said if you do meditation, you lose your uh, ego strength in the sense of becoming a mad person. You have to be an integrated person. You go higher, okay? Usually the word ahankara is translated as ego in many books, you see. Mm. So I thought we have to examine this. This could be a problem in translation rather than real meaning or importance of what happens, etc. So I, me and my student uh, together uh, studied uh, some descriptions of what ahankara means because the in the Indian tradition says if you want to realize yourself, your ahankara should go. Mm. So. My losing ahankara does it mean I become mad person? This was the question. Mm. So we started looking into what that concept means. Then we found there are four aspects to this concept of ahankara, four ways of manifesting. Uh, One is fundamental, that is separation between the I and the other, okay? the boundary that you draw between the I and the other. Mm-hmm. So this is a
0: separation, okay? Fundamentally. Yes. It's the most basic separation everybody makes. Makes. Okay. That which is me and that which isn't.
1: Yeah. Right. Then the second aspect of Ahankara is the identification. And the identification starts with your body. You see? Freud said the first identification of, or the first sign of ego is your identification with the body. Mm. So we identify with our body and then, you know, we are given a name and then uh, my relationships, then my family, my community, my... Uh, My learning, my skills, my ability, my possessions, my language, my culture, my nationality, my race, all the identifications gradually keep on accumulating. Okay, And then, not only that, there is something special as me, which is my individuality or uniqueness. I not only have these identifications, I also have being born as somebody. I have my individuality. I try to develop that also. And while doing all this, I feel I am doing, I am suffering, I am enjoying, which is the notion of agency. So, when we, Ahankara has these four aspects, four ways of manifesting you take any transaction that happens in the human world, one or the other aspect is dominating in our transaction at every moment, Mm -hmm. okay? If we speak of uh, national differences, then the separateness is operating. If you are an executive, your agency is dominating. If you think of family, religion, or nation, your identification is coming to the fore. If you want to highlight what you have accomplished, your individuality comes. So either these things are always, you know, going up and down in our conversation. The fluctuations of the mind. This is what's ahankara. Yeah. Which isn't quite the
0: same as ego strength at all.
1: Yeah, that is the f- function of buddhi. We speak of ahankara, buddhi, manas, and chitta. And the ego strength is buddhi, which has the capacity to determine, discriminate, take you know, judgment, decide. So we developed two, two inventories. One ahankara inventory and another ego strength inventory, ego function inventory. And we examine giving it to a group of meditators and a group of normals. And we found, and then we subjected it to factor analysis, and we found that uh, ahankara and ego functions are, you know, orthogonal. They are two principal or, or components. Orthogonal, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. They are two principal components, uh-huh. independent, you know, on the X and Y axis. Yeah. So they are separate. So what the tradition is asking is, don't give up your buddhi, your ego strength. Give up your... Identifications. give up your idea of agency. Give up your idea of duality and separation. Give up your idea that you are very unique. So if you come to India, if you look into the Upanishadic literature, if you look into Ramayana, if you look into Mahabharata, you look into what we have in the Sikhism or in the Jainism, or if you read all that, Everything, whether it is in Sanskrit, Hindi, Bengali, you know, we have the poems of uh, famous uh, saints, you know, uh, some, some of them are Muslims by birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, example, for example, Kabir Das. Mm-hmm. He, he Kabir was a Muslim. Mm-hmm. He, 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 he venerated Rama, Hindu God. Mm-hmm. So you take all of that, you read, what you find is they are suggesting, you know, uh give up the agency give up the notion of identification give up the notion of separateness give up the notion of individuality so so that so when you give up all that is then
0: you realize your true self kiran kumar salagame what a beautiful exposition of Indian psychology. You've really yeah, demonstrated the yeah, unification of East and West in this very significant research. And uh, what a wonderful exposition of, of how an ancient tradition and modern science can come together.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for thank, that.
0: Thank you for being with me. Yeah, yeah. Namaste. And thank you for being with us. Thank you.